If you'll open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 8, we'll be looking at verses 16, 17. We'll get into verse, or chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. The title of the message this evening is Still Baffled. You ever felt that way? After thinking that you had everything figured out or hoping that you did, you were you ended up seeing that you didn't and you were still baffled. Well, this is the way Solomon feels. And so in turn, we're going to be looking at those verses. And as you turn to chapter 8, 16 and 17, verses 16 and 17, and 1 through 6 of chapter 9, let's bow our heads in prayer and let's go to the Lord asking for wisdom and knowledge and understanding. Because he's the only one that can open up our eyes to the truth and give it to us. Father, I just want to thank you for this day and these people. And Lord, for your time to worship you and honor you. And I just pray that we'll continue to make the most of it this evening. I thank you for allowing us this time together. Thank you for the people that uh, are able to be here and see the need to be here to worship you. And, and I just pray that uh, with that, you'll honor it. And you'll bless our hearts with your word, your truth, and, and that you'll enlighten our minds and our hearts uh, as only you can do. And, and uh, God, with this, um, this passage tonight, I just pray that uh, to see it clearly, that you'll open our eyes to see it. And that's the only way that it can be done, and that your grace will just take care of everything, that you're, you will just... Um, uh, bless our hearts and, and touch our lives and enrich us and strengthen us and challenge us as only you can. And this is what I ask, for I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, this section, <clears throat> beginning with verse 16 of chapter 8, it marks the last of four divisions of Ecclesiastes. From here to the end of the book, the author does not really introduce anything new. I mean, you notice that he's been touching on different things. Well, not really anything new. He simply repeats and enlarges upon the claim that he's already made or that, uh, and the uh, about the significance of life and what he's found and uh, uh, how, you know, uh, that the uh, significance of life is found only in daily contact with the living God. He wants you to recognize that because under the sun we can understand nothing but it's that looking above and seeking the perspective of God by way of having the Holy Spirit in our lives that we can understand life more fully you know we look at individuals today and we look at people seeking in life different things and not feeling uh, fulfilled and, and just seeking one thing right after another and as we do, sometimes we think, why in the world are they doing that? How, why can't they see what they're doing to their life? But they, we have to remember that they're living under the sun. You know, their, their perspective is purely that. And Solomon is letting us know that, hey, this cannot be, uh, you know, solved. And, and there's so many questions in life. You just cannot come up with the answers. And even if you're a child of God, there's still mysteries that we don't understand, aren't there? And so, uh, 
from here on to the end of the book, he just, you know, uh, com- continues to repeat and enlarge on what he's already talked about. So this section, uh, in it, he reminds us that we are to take life as it comes and not insist on understanding everything about it. Sometimes we get frustrated and we say, well, God, why is that happening? Why are you allowing that? Why is this happening? I just don't understand. I prayed for this. I prayed for wisdom. And and Lord, you're you're not giving it to me, at least not uh, the way I can see it and understand it, at, at least not now. God, why aren't you telling me what's happening? Why can't I see and understand all the mysteries? Why did this have to happen to this person? Why did this happen happen to uh, or have to happen to me? Why can't I do this? Why can't I do that? Why can't they do this or that? What in the world is going on? So he's telling us and reminding us to take life as it comes and not to insist on understanding everything about it. Now you say, well, am I not to seek it out? We'll talk about that in just a few moments. We've already talked about that in previous messages, but we'll, we'll talk about it further tonight. You know, I, I wish that I could tell you that all you had to do is to come to church. You need to come to church, don't get me wrong. And you need to study your Bible, and I wish that I could tell you that's all you needed to do. And send me money. Uh, you know, that's all you needed to do. <laughs> No, and that nothing evil would ever happen to you and that you'd understand everything and you'd have all the answers. But I can't do that. <laughs> uh, you know, with a um, sincere heart. Uh, as a matter of fact, the current idea uh, that's being taught by some preachers today is God wants you to be prosperous. And bad things can't happen to Christians. Just send me the money and I'll make sure of that. But that's incorrect, isn't it? It's cruel. It's a cruel theology. It's dangerous. God is not that easy to understand and we need to understand that. Matter of fact, if we could understand everything about God, then we would be God, wouldn't we? Why would there be a need for God? Ecclesiastes is not the kind of book that you keep reading until you reach the end and you get the answer like a mystery. Instead, and this is very important for this book and in understanding this book, instead, it is a book in which we keep struggling with the problems of life. But the struggles are for a purpose, and we need to understand that. They help us to learn to trust God with the questions, even when we do not have the answers. This is how the Christian life works. It is not just about what we can get at the end, but also about what we become along the way. Discipleship is a journey, isn't it? And it's not merely a destination. It's what we become along the way. And so the preacher gives us some reasons why we should not think that we have to solve all the problems and answer all the questions that life throws us. So he starts off, he says, When I applied my life to know wisdom and to observe the uh, labor that is done on earth, people getting no sleep day or night, then I saw all that God has done. 
No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, they cannot really comprehend it. They're just deceiving you. You hear these people say they have all the answers. They don't have all the answers. Philosophers, all this philosophical talk, all the ones who go back and forth and they think they have all the answers, they don't. So the first thing that we need to look at and the, uh, with the preacher and what he's saying is life is too complicated for man to have it figured out under the sun. Life is too complicated. At the end of chapter 8, the preacher is still struggling with many of the same questions. And the advice he gave in verse 15 was good as far as it went, but it did not give him all the answers that he was hoping for. And so he still was of the notion that life was too complicated, too vast, too filled with conflicting elements for anyone to figure out all the answers. To get all the answers. Now I'm not saying that we're not to get answers, which I said that we'd come back to in just a few moments. Solomon was of the opinion that all men are in the hand of God. We've seen that. And he, God is sovereign and he doesn't, let, he, you know, he doesn't have to let us in on all his plans, does he? And, and all his, his purposes. But we can be sure that he is a loving father who will never forsake us. And we need to understand that. The preacher tells us that uh, even sleepless toil will not solve life's mysteries. You wrestling with problems and, oh man, this and that, and what am I going to do, and how am I going to figure this out, and all this kind of, you, li- you lose all that sleep, and, and you, uh, you, know, you wrestle all night with these, these conflicting thoughts, and, and you can't come to a conclusion, you don't know the answer. He's saying, you know, you just, some things you won't figure out. I don't know if you've ever wondered, you know, you've heard people say, I've said it, why? Why did that happen? Or why is that what, that way? Or what's going on? Or even more so, what if? What if if I'd done this or if I'd done that? Would life been different? And, you know, no matter how many sleepless nights and how much toil in, in seeking that we attempt, we will fail to comprehend his holy ways on our own. And we won't know We'll never know all about God, this side of heaven. We can know all that he wants us to know, but we, we're not God. And so, you know, in, in 2006, I read about this. There was an article about gigabytes. And boy, I'm an expert on gigabytes, on uh, digital information, you know. And, and so it's, it's about these little things that bite you, gigabytes. And, and they giggle when they bite. I don't know. Uh, anyway, they said that it was their estimation that the world generated almost 200 billion gigabytes of digital information every year. This was in 2006. Yet none of that data could even begin, the writer said, to explain the mysteries of the sovereignty of God. Wow. 
And we see how awesome with just that, how awesome God is. Many things in the divine government of, of the universe are simply beyond our capability, our capacity to, to know. So what's the best way to respond to this limitation? What are we to do? To just give up? Not try to understand? No. Now we talked about this and here I am back to this point. We've already talked about it in Ecclesiastes. The Bible never condemns our attempts at understanding life. Rather, what it does is it promotes it. Promotes the pursuit of knowledge. It encourages it in Scripture. We are to seek out. The mind does matter with God. We are to reason and think and, and, and stretch it. And understand about more about God and what he's doing and about life. This is not, Solomon is not against that. Matter of fact, he's going through all of that, isn't he? But he's coming to some conclusions. Uh, these conclusions that he's coming to are things that he's learned. Not only by stretching his mind and, and all of this, but also stretching himself through experiences. He's experienced a lot of this. But we've, all, we, we've got to always remember, though, and this is one thing that he's trying to get across, that, as the argument makes clear here, that no matter how much we try to understand the mysteries of God, the mysteries, some, some of them will still remain. We won't be able to understand everything. So we do not have enough data, nor do we have the ability to see life in its totality. Only God has that. But we do have what it takes to know what God wants us to know. And we should understand that. So we must be content with some degree to some mystery still being out there. This is what he's telling us. Otherwise you may become like some who have come to the conclusion that there is no God. You see some people wrestle with this so much that they never become a Christian they say there must not be a God why because they cannot bring him down to their level they cannot totally understand him they can't have all the answers about life and about him that they think that they need in other words they're wanting to make God a person on their level the same caliber as they are and since he's not, then they just don't want to believe in him. They say life is only, as one person said, life is only a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Or those who think, and although there may be a God, some say, well, you know, there may be a God, but he has no idea of what he's doing. He's not in control. Some wrestle with these questions so much that they come to that Conclusion. They're like the Thomas Hardy who wrote in his, in his books, the dreaming, the dark, the dumb, capitalized T thing that turns the handle of this idle, capital S, show. That's the way some think. And Solomon is not wanting us to come to that point. This is not the kind of thinking that the preacher is talking about here. As skeptical as he is about the ability to know the mind of God, 
He's nevertheless believes that what happens in the world is the work of God in Ecclesiastes 8, 17. What does he say there? He says, then I saw that God, what God has done, no one can comprehend what goes on under the sun despite all the efforts to search it out. No one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, they cannot really know. All that God has done, the work that God has done. These words were written by the wisest man in the ancient world. He freely admits that man cannot know all the answers. He says that even diligence and labor will not unravel life's miseries. In other words, wrestling with, uh, with these uh, mysteries all night long will not unravel them. Not all of them. The preacher has tried to discover the truth about things as they actually are, both by experience and careful observation. And so he learned that life is a weary business, and it's impossible to know for certain what God is doing in the world all the time. We just don't know. Men often claim to know the answers behind what's happened to us, but they are only deceiving themselves a lot of times. Many, many people are unwilling to accept the truth of Scripture until they can understand to accept everything that they know and that they can understand. Until they know it, they won't accept it. This book was written uh, almost uh, 2,500 years ago, yet the truth it represents is still so vast that even in our age of advanced knowledge, no one can find all the answers under the sun. No one. Even though the preacher reached the conclusion that life is too complicated for man to figure out, he never gave up his faith that God was in charge. He believed in a sovereign God. Solomon gives us a specific to think about that backs his way of thinking. Second thing is, it's impossible to discover to discover from the events that happen whether we have God's approval. This is illustration. He was saying, this is what I wrestle with. It's impossible to discover from the events that happen whether we have God's approval or disapproval. Why? Because it rains on the just and the unjust, doesn't it? So you say, you can't go by what's going on necessarily a lot of times to know what, how that person is living and what, what God's purpose is. I had a preacher one time tell me, because we were in, in Birmingham and we were going through a lot of difficulties. I'd gotten a flu and, or pneumonia and had a kidney stone and, and just one thing right after another it seemed like. He said, man, you better find out... Uh, what sins in your life so that God, you know, all that will stop, you know. I thought, well, I've checked it out and I can't find anything, uh, but I'll keep on checking, you know. But what he was doing was he was preparing me for something that was specific that was coming up in the church. I was serving on staff that I would have to deal with and I was going to have to trust him with all my heart, with all my soul to get through the situation. And so... We just don't know. He says in verses 1 through 3, So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. <clears throat> but what, no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. 
In other words, you don't know whether God's disciplining them or not a lot of times. Now, sometimes we do, but not all the time. And so, all share a common destiny, he says. The righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. He says, hey, and we all end up dying. That is the equalizer. As it is the good, so with the sinful. As with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil and everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. And we're all going to die in the end. But he's saying that for a reason. The hearts of the people, moreover, are full of evil. And there is madness in their hearts while they live. And afterwards, they join the dead. The preacher says, even though we may understand that we are in the hand of God, nevertheless, verses 1 through 3, it is difficult to know from the events that happen to us whether we have his approval or disapproval. And that is true. Even, even when we think that we're, we're walking right with God, don't we question ourselves sometimes when things are beginning to trouble us and and we get bumps in the road and all, and we say, hey, are we going down the right road? Are we doing what God wants us to do? Is this really what God, and, and you felt like this is what God wanted you to do, and your heart is confessed, and, and, or you thought you were, and then you say, man, is, is something wrong in my life? Is God dealing with me? And so you, you start asking all these questions. It's the, the preacher knew, and so... The preacher had been meditating and observing and seeking and thinking about these things. He says, I've come to the conclusion that we may understand that we are in the hand of God. Nevertheless, it's still difficult to know from the events that happen to us whether we have his approval or disapproval. Whether it's love or hate, in other words, what he says here. You see, the preacher has, in this book, already pointed out that prosperity is not always a sign of God, is it? That he's happy with us. It rains on the just and the unjust. Even the wicked prosper sometimes. Matter of fact, a lot of them may prosper more than we do, you know, because we are living and we are not cutting corners and we're not doing things uh, deceptively or whatever, uh, or, uh, you, uh, as some do. I'm not saying all the, the lost people do that in, in making money, but some do, and and so we may not live like uh, financially like some of those who are lost and who are doing it illegally. And so he, adversity, on the other hand, it, it's not always a gauge or a sign that you are being punished by God, is it? The book of Job is perfect proof on that. So the preacher leaves God's people in God's hands. The Bible uses the image, the hand of God, to express God's power, his love, his supervision, and his sovereignty uh, over our lives, over our actions. For the faithful believer in Jesus Christ, the hand of God should be an image of comfort, love, and assurance. Just think about it. We know this because we know that the hands of Jesus were pierced for our transgressions, weren't they? When he was nailed to the tree for our sins. 
So this gives us hope as believers and, and faith to leave everything in God's hands even when we don't understand it. And faith to leave every, everything in God's hands means that all of our burdens, all of our trials, and all of our cares are put there. Now we won't take them back at times because we still are humans and we want to figure out things. On, and we end up trying to figure out things on our own so, so often. Even believers. But it gives us that hope, that comfort. Even when we can't come to that conclusion, we don't understand, we've reached that, that end in our, our uh, crossroads, then we put it in his hands. Say, God, I just don't understand. The Savior who loves us and died for us will always care for us. Being in the hand of God is not synonymous with or a guarantee for being economically prosperous, so physically healthy, protected from pain, and enjoying a trouble-free occupation. It may mean just the opposite. So as the preacher struggled with the question whether God is for us or against us, he discovered that it was virtually impossible to answer the question simply by looking at people's environments, their circumstances. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. So just because a person is doing well financially, the preacher lets us know God may not be pleased with him. He may be, but he may not be. Just because a, a godly person is going through trials and tribulation doesn't necessarily mean that he is out of the will of God or doing something wrong. He may or he may not be. The preacher is telling us under the sun, it appears that God treats everyone more or less the same. Reigns on the just and the unjust, which makes it hard to figure out whether he loves us or hates us. He struggled as to, and, and the hating there is not hating in the sense that he doesn't want anything to do with us, but it's like Esau and Jacob, you remember? And uh, it's one chose to go his way in unbelief, and that was considered hate, you know, uh, uh, you know not agreeing with him, cutting that rope or whatever, because he's in disobedience and the other one was love and it looked like that and and so in turn uh, same way in the new testament where if we're, we're to follow the lord you know uh, sometimes it looks that way it looks like it's it's hate in the sense when somebody says okay to hate your mom and your dad whatever and follow the lord well uh, that's not literally hate in the sense of okay uh, i hate you and i don't want to have anything to do with you but it may look to them like you're choosing someone, which you are, to be first in your life over them. And so uh, he's saying here, so why seek to be holy? Why live for God? Why become his child? And the reason is, is there before us. He mentions it over and over again. The same destiny overtakes us all. He's saying because death awakens us to why we live or why we should live. The preacher questions as to why we should live a godly life, and he says, you know, just like I said earlier, it, God reigns on the justice, the unjust, just alike. And we can't tell a lot of times if the events in a person's life is because of love or hate. So, you know, whether he's a believer or a disbeliever, whether he's out of God's will, whether he's in God's will, on top of that, both the wicked and the righteous must die. So 
But death is the equalizer, the great equalizer. It should waken up our, or awaken us and wake up our minds to the truth. No matter if we're righteous or unrighteous, good, bad, indifferent, death comes to all. So death is a great proof that there is something wrong about humanity and all must die. So what does that tell us? That tells us that we better wake up to life, which he tells us in just a few moments, which we'll get to. It forces us to face reality. A funeral is proof of that, that we're not in, in control of our lives. Few would choose to die if they had any other way of preventing it. And, and the preacher, but the preacher and the word of God lets us know that we must all face death. So uh, you, you look back at the, 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 uh, uh, the Black Plague. There was a song that arose during that time, you remember? And we used to sing it as kids growing up. Ring around the roses, pocket full of posies. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down. You remember that? That is about this. This is what the preacher is talking about, death. In other words, many people, even the doctors at that time, thought that the plague came from polluted air. So fresh flowers to them was a way to keep from getting the plague. It was, it was like cleaning the air for them. So what would they do? They would carry petals from the flesh, fresh flowers in their pockets and fill the hospital rooms with them. The petals would be sprinkled by the doctors on, uh, <clears throat> on the patients that had the plague. Others would blow ashes into the face of the plague victims. Why? To try and get them to sneeze hoping that the sneeze would clear their lungs of this plague. But what does the little rhyme say? They all fall down. We all eventually fall down. Death is the equalizer. The fact that death comes to both good and bad forces, I mean, uh, both good and bad people, forces us to face evil within us. And notice what the preacher says next. The hearts of all are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live in Ecclesiastes 9.3. Paul tells us in Romans 5.12, sin entered into the world and death through sin. So death spreads throughout humanity because of sin. Evil in us. So all will die. Some will die late, some will die early. But it is the same for both, the wicked and the righteous. Solomon says that during our lives we live among crazy people. How true that is. Because everyone is depraved. Some hearts become so confused that they pursue all kinds of wickedness. So the preacher tells us that craziness of life makes evil Men even crazier. The human heart is full of so much evil that it almost drives us out of our mind. We become mad. The madness may be defined as moral uh, wildness that is impetuous and irrational, as some have said. Dr. Kaiser said uh, it defines it as every conceivable madness. And I would like to go along with him. People commit acts of lawless violence. 
I mean, I, I read about one mother this morning who had uh, uh, put their, their child on, on certain medication so that they would be able to get help from the government. And it hurt the child. Madness. They pursue self-destructive addictions like sex and drugs. They hurt people they love the most and need the most. They kill the innocent. How else can we describe the rebellion of our age? Solomon tells us the hearts of the son of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts through their lives. So, as we look at this, how can we prove whether we have God's approval or disapproval? When people try to live only for this life and when all their, their values are centered here, they see nothing beyond here. It's only under the sun. And they're never able to, to solve the riddles or questions of life. Even the ones that God intends for us to settle. The thing that constantly intrudes upon uh, <clears throat> them is a fact of death, and they cannot find any final philosophy that comforts and satisfies them as they think of death. Death is a great proof that something is wrong about humanity, and it forces us to face reality. But the preacher is still wondering here, since death is inevitable, is there any advantage to living? Yes, death makes us, and it should make us, examine why we're here. That there is evil in the world, and that we should do all we can and understand all we can to make it better. And the only way that you can do that is coming by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. So, what are we to do? How should we view life? He says in verses 4 through 6, we are not to seek after comfort but significance it's the significance of living why we were put here the purpose that we're here for anyone who is among the living has hope even a live dog is better off than a dead lion for the living know that they will die but the dead know nothing I mean it's gone forever isn't it they have no further reward and even their name is forgotten their love their hate and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. The preacher's not saying there is no life after death. What he is talking about here, this is clearly written from the perspective of this life under the sun. And he says he does not confront the reader with anything, any type of, of, of life here other than under the sun. Most uh, right here. Most people try to avoid even thinking about death. Solomon does not, though. He's saying, you readers, there's more to it. You're just thinking under the sun uh, about what life is about right now. But he says, there is importance to living only because you think of death, because death brings to your reality that, hey, now after you, you die, you can't enjoy all of this, nor can you be effective, nor can your life fulfill its purpose the way God intended it for. So you better start thinking now while you're still living. 
The preacher states a proverb which contrasts a living dog with a dead lion. And the lion is a noble beast. In Proverbs 30, 30, it says the lion which is mighty among beasts. And this was especially true in the biblical days when the lion served as a royal insignia of, of uh, the house of David, the emblem of the Messiah in Genesis 49, 9. By contrast, few animals were more despised than the dogs. Now, I want to tell you, dogs were looked upon differently during that day and time as today. They were more scavengers. They weren't house pets for the most part. And so these were, you know, I mean, you can even see that when Goliath makes the statement to David when David comes out to fight him. You remember? He said in, in 1 Samuel 17, 43, Am I a dog? A scavenger? That you, little boy, come to me with sticks to run off? A little paraphrase of me going in there. But. So the simple point is this. Living is better than dying, he says. Dying brings to your mind that, hey, you need to start making the most of living. You've got a purpose here. The preacher states that death brings Ignorance. Death brings about inseparable loss. Forfeit everything. Death brings about oblivion. No one remembers the dead. And earthly emotions will pass away. All your emotions will pass away. So the preacher is telling us not to give up hope and to give in to despair. Just because you can't understand everything and you don't know everything. There is a God and you should believe in God and he has a purpose for you. Just because life is vanity doesn't mean that it is hopeless. It may seem like vanity to you, but it's more really than vanity. You're looking at it under the sun. Start looking at it above. Life is a common blessing that God has bestowed on everyone. God has bestowed that blessing on everyone. As long as there's life, there is hope. And as long as there's life, there can be dreams. As long as there's life, there can be love. As long as there's life, there can be purpose. And you need to understand your purpose. Solomon says, for the living know that they will die. If we're alive, there is hope of getting ready, in other words. The hope of preparation. But the dead know nothing, he says. They have no further reward. And even their name is forgotten. He says their love, their hate, their jealousy have long been vanished. Even again, with, uh, never again will they have a part in every, anything that happens under the sun. So everyone who has lost a loved one can understand what the preacher is saying. He's saying their love, their hate, their zeal has per perished here. They no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. No more Christian festivities, no more Thanksgivings, no more Easter's, no more birthdays, anniversaries, no more activities involving children, later grandchildren. All have perished for them under the sun. So what is he saying? He's saying, make the most of today. Realize that you are a child of God if you're a child of God. If you're not, trust in the Lord and start living for Him. Make the most of the day. So the question we need to ask ourselves is, what are we living for? What is the purpose of our existence? Why are we here? What is it all about? 
if life has any purpose at all, it must be found in what happens now. Because our life is a journey, isn't it? And we're to be learning and being discipled and being one who comes along, being more like Christ, leading others to the Lord, helping, helping others, raising families to become that way. To see what we lose through death, it ought to make us appreciate the fact that we're still alive and breathing. However difficult life may be, at least we are alive. And the deeper question to ask is, what hope does life really give us? What hope does life really give us? In verse 5, the preacher states, the living know that they will die, in other words. Relatively speaking, life is better than death, but the main advantage of living turns out to be the knowledge of dying. This gives us time to prepare for death and for eternity. Wow. The preacher will talk more about this eternity in chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes where he speaks of life above. He says the spirit returns to God who gave it. Ecclesiastes 12, 7. And to a life in verse 14 that comes. When God will bring every deed into judgment. He believes in a judgment. Wow. We need to look beyond Ecclesiastes. Though to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the promise of the resurrection. You see Ecclesiastes does not have all the answers. Nor does it claim to. <laughs> he claims he doesn't have all the answers. But remember this. is not the kind of book that we keep on reading. Until we get the answer. But the kind of book that helps us to know how to serve God when we do not have all the answers. And it is also a part of a larger book that gives fuller answers, right? The Bible. To many of the questions that Ecclesiastes only begins to address. Let's bow our heads and pray.